beginning a new series. We're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, looking at the first 11 verses. It's printed for you in toad on the ESV, or you're welcome to turn there in your own translation. Find Psalms and keep going east, and you'll get there eventually. Before we go to God's Word, let's go together in prayer. Now, Father, Your Word tells us that blessed is the one whom You discipline, the one whom You teach from Your Word. And Lord, we confess along with the psalmist that when the cares of our heart are many, the consolations of Your Word cheer our soul. And so Lord, as we come before Your Word this morning, we ask, Holy Spirit, You would feed us richly. May we see Christ. Know Him more, love Him better, and be transformed. We ask this in His name. Amen. All right, boys and girls, make sure you have your bulletin here. You have your own translation in there. We're going to be referring to that. And as we begin this study of Ecclesiastes, I want to admit up front, you know, sometimes life just doesn't make sense, does it? 147 Christian students were killed by Islamists, Islamists at Garissa College in Africa. They were massacred because they were Christians. There's been no real popular response from cultural or political leaders. It's almost been forgotten, really. Yet, about a month and a half ago, 12 atheistic journalists from a French magazine that went out of its way to offend everybody it could possibly think of when they were killed by Islamists, the world leaders joined hands. Politicians wept for the cameras. Masses claimed unity with them. The big, je suis Charlie, I am Charlie. Why the hypocrisy? Is it African lives don't matter? Is it young lives don't matter? Christian lives don't matter as much? Is it all of the above? That's frustrating, isn't it? Let's just own that. That is frustrating. You know, when life shows how unmanageable it is, we wonder, how is God in control when things like that happen? Now, the typical religious response, and again, I've been in church, my parents had me in church even before we were believers. I've been in church most of my life, so I get to say this with some authority now. The typical religious response when things don't go well in life has been, smile, don't voice those questions. You might make someone doubt. You may doubt yourself. Don't ask. So polish up your good church person exterior. Swallow your questions. Say fine when they ask you how you're doing. And make sure you display your happy Christian face or baby Jesus will cry. Now, I'm going to an extreme there. I know, I'm being facetious. But we have all felt the pressure, haven't we, to put a positive spin on life's difficulties because we go to church. Maybe even make a pious pronouncement about something to help God save face because He needs our help. Make sure Christianity doesn't look bad. But really, we Christians should actually be at the forefront of admitting life is frustrating. Life in this world doesn't work. And that is why, uh, hello, we need Jesus. And you need Him too. Now, for some of you, you're freaking out right now. I know, like, dude, Pastor Sean, don't say that out loud, man. I mean, sure, we've all thought those, but you can't say that. You know, about 10, 15 years ago, a movie came out 
called Jerry Maguire about a sports agent. And then, you remember how the movie starts? It's a soap opera. Most of you have probably seen it. At the very beginning, he gets this pang of conscience at seeing one of his clients who got really hurt really bad. And he realizes as an agent, he's pushed his client into this. And he has this pang of conscience. And he's at a conference for other sports agents. So he writes this memo about, about all these things. And he sends out a copy to everybody. Do you remember what the name of the memo was? The Things We Think But Never Say. That is the subtitle of Ecclesiastes. If you want to, I, I give you permission, put a colon in your Bible and under Ecclesiastes, but the things we think but never say. Because that is the book of Ecclesiastes in church world. It is about the difficulty and frustrations of life in this world. How we don't have all the answers most of the time. We have to live by faith in the Lord who claims He is in control when quite frankly, very often, it doesn't look like He's in control. It doesn't look like good conquers evil. It doesn't look like His promises to cover and protect His people are true. We have to live by faith. Ecclesiastes is about that difficulty, that challenge. Instead, Ecclesiastes tells us that life is like a vapor. As soon as we try to grasp it and get a hold on it and say, I understand life, I've got it, I can manage, I've, I've got this. Life changes and we're back to frustration, we're back to anxiety. Even in the church, people have stresses and anxieties and difficulties. And just because we say in Jesus' name, amen, they don't go away. And again, some of you are like, dude, don't say that out loud. But that's all of us. And so from now, probably through the end of the summer, I'm thinking we're going to be in this book together, this book of Ecclesiastes, this book of wisdom together. So here's what I want you to remember about Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes asks the questions the rest of the Bible answers. It is one long sermon and at its very end, it gets around to the answer itself, but it takes it 12 chapters of some pretty heavy stuff. In the meantime, this preacher, some translations have it, we could actually say more like a philosopher, more like a pastor even maybe, lays his cards out on the table with complete honesty. And he says, here is what life looks like in a cursed, fallen world, especially... If we say there is no God, this is all there is, well, this is what life is like then. It is a truthful look at life that doesn't work. At life that's hard to manage, hard to control. Life that leaves us hungry for meaning, hungry for purpose, hungry for identity, hungry for something more. Life that even for Christians is difficult. And a word you're going to hear me use a lot, frustrating. See, for church folk, again, we've been conditioned to put a positive spin on life, haven't we? Being honest about these questions is hard for us. But being honest about these questions is the key, not just to our own personal peace in Christ, but it's also the key. Being honest about these issues is vital to sharing the gospel with our neighbors in a post-Christian world. For generations... 
The aroma of Christianity was all over Western culture. The inherited cultural values were based on the biblical narrative. And it smoothed over these questions for most people. I mean, sure, you had your Sartres and you had your Nietzsche's and you had your Kierkegaard's and their hoity-toity towers asking these questions. You're like, philosophers, right? Get a job. But now... When it comes to meaning of purpose and, and, and identity and what's life like in this world if there is no God because that God assumption has been suppressed and suppressed, now, functionally, the way people live, your auto mechanic is thinking about these ultimate issues while you're fixing your car. The checkout lady at Walmart's thinking about these things. And deep down, we are too. And Ecclesiastes is a great tool for talking to people about the gospel in a real world that doesn't work. So Ecclesiastes asks the questions the rest of the Bible answers in Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, let's go to God's Word now. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. This is God's Word. <clears throat> the words of the preacher. Again, we could say philosopher. We could translate this word even pastor. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it said, See, this is new. It has already been in ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is God's Word. All right, I want to give you a sentence. Somewhere we're going to hang our hat as we go through this difficult passage. You might want to write this one down if you don't have it, because this is, this is a tough passage. It's this. Since we gain nothing... When our frustrating world exhausts us, we long for something not here, something new. So this world is frustrating. This world is exhausting. But instead of wearing ourselves out, we need to get over the sun. I want to do something a little different. We have slides working, I hope. I want to read the entire kids' translation for you. I usually don't do this, but I, I want to walk through this together to help us get a sense and a feel of this text. So boys and girls, take yours out. Everybody else, you can look at the slides. Here's the kids' translation of this passage today. The sermon of the preacher, one of David's sons and king in Jerusalem. He says, Cloudy breath on a cold day, smoke and vapor, empty and meaningless. Life is that frustrating. Everybody is busy with places to go and things to do, but what do we really get in this world from all that work? People lived and died before we were born, and there will be people after we die 
but the dirt will still be here. The sun will still wear itself out, rising and setting. The wind will still blow round and round. The rivers will still run to the ocean without ever filling it up. Everything, people and planet, are so worn out, we can't talk about it. But since we aren't happy, we stay busy and empty. There is nothing in this world to refresh us. All the answers have been tried. Even if you think it's new, someone else already tried it. We don't remember it. Just as future people won't remember us. Can you feel it? This is a downer, isn't it? I mean, but it's honest. This is where our neighbors live. If you're not quite here yet, if you're, if you're still like, no, but Jesus, this is where our culture lives. The key to understanding this book is found in that little phrase, under the sun. So if we're going to understand this book, that's how we have to do this. So the first thing I want to look at is I want to look at those first couple of verses, frustration under the sun. That little phrase, under the sun, it's used 28 times in Ecclesiastes. 28 times in 12 chapters, you do the math, that's a lot. The best way to think about this phrase is to reach into the New Testament, grab the phrase it uses all the time, this world, the world, this present age, whatever, and Cut and paste that into Ecclesiastes. Every time you read under the sun, think this world. It's the way of life in a fallen, cursed world. For believers and unbelievers, it's here in a world that is under the curse of God. You see, the world used to be different. And that's the problem. We used to have perfect fellowship with our Creator. He was with us. He gave us the meaning. He grounded us. We were significant with him. And then rebellion came, what we call the fall. And we lost it all in the fall. And, and living in that loss, we know things should be better. We know the world should work differently. And that's where our frustration under the sun comes. Blaise Pascal, a 17th century Christian philosopher, Christian mathematician, he taught this incredible idea I came across recently called the disinherited prince syndrome. I'll say it again, the disinherited prince syndrome. And he basically said this. He said, the fall is like a spiritual fossil. It's a clue to some sort of past height from which the entire world has now deteriorated and fallen. He says it this way. Someone who's never been a prince wouldn't be particularly unhappy being a peasant. But someone who was a prince and lost it all would chafe to their very heart at being a peasant because they're a disinherited prince and they remember what it used to be like. They know this is not the life they were meant for. That's us. He goes on to say, humans aren't happy. It's like there's some sort of collective memory in humanity of a time when we were happy. The world we are now under the sun doesn't work and makes us unhappy. And because we're unhappy, it means that there used to be a time we were happy and we want to go back. We're all disinherited princes. That's life under the sun. We know that somehow deep in our gut, things are not as they should be. We know it should be better. And so we cry out, verse 2, vanity of vanities. It's a very famous phrase, but that's not the best word to use today. It doesn't mean what it did back in 
those times. I want you to think of going outside on a cold morning. I want you to think of that big exhale breath you take. What does your breath look like on a cold morning? That cloudy, vaporous thing, and then it just disappears? That's this Hebrew word. It means vapor. It means misty. It means cloudy. It means ethereal. When you apply it to certain specific things, it means worthless. And often, the best usage that you're going to hear me use a lot, my personal preference, is frustrating. That's the Hebrew word. So this is how they don't have er and s like, you know, big, bigger, biggest in Hebrew. They don't do that. They use the possessive case. Hence, what's the inner, inner, inner part of the temple called? Not the holiest. What's it called? The holy of holies, right? That's what you're supposed to think of. By saying vanity of vanities or frustratingest of frustratings, he's saying the most frustrating thing like ever is what he's saying. That's what life is like. It just slips through our fingers. We can't hold on to it. And that frustration shows with the question of verse 3. Where is all the profit in what we do? We're working ourselves to death. Everybody's busy. We wear busy like a badge of honor, don't we? Hey, can we have lunch today? Oh, I'm busy. I'm busy, busy, busy. I'm busy. Okay, you're busy. I, I validate you. you you're, you're worth You can live here now. Can we have lunch? See, so he says, where's the profit? Where's the gain in everything we do? Boys and girls, again, I'll make sure you're following along. Let's look at your verse 3. Let's zoom in there. Here's what the question he's asking. It says, everybody is busy with places to go and things to do. But what do we really get in this world from all that work? Now, boys and girls, you may not know what a Pascal is. I know. But you've done this. You've, you've done Pascal's thing. Let me ask you something, boys and girls. What's the most common question that you had from ages 2 to 5, or if you have a younger brother or sister, what's the most common question they have from 2 to 5? That one-word question that's on their mouth all the time. Why? Right? We got to know. And boys and girls, as you get older, you stop asking. Not because you got a good answer, but because you start to realize, I never get a good answer. That's what this book is saying, boys and girls. That's the question we all face. Why? And the world doesn't answer. Everything we do, everything we suffer, everything we compete, everything we enjoy, everything we fail at, what are we really left with? Back in college, I came across a quote from the famous Russian author Leo Tolstoy. Uh, Tim Keller used this quote in his book a couple years ago, so now it's everywhere. You've probably seen it. And it fits so well what this preacher in Ecclesiastes is saying. Here's what Tolstoy said. He said, My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions, lying in the soul of every man. What will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Now, you may not actually ask that question, but functionally, the way we live our life, that question is the root of the frustration of life under the sun. If this cursed world is all there is, what's the point there's no profit, there's no gain in anything. And since deep down we know it, we wear ourselves out with busyness trying to cover it up. But what do we get? We hunger, 
We thirst for something deeper, something to bring significance to our life. We're scared to death of meaningless, that life really is only a vapor. And we hunger and we thirst for real purpose and meaning. We reach out for it in vain under a cursed sun. It just leads to frustration. It also leads, verses 4 through 8 show us, to exhaustion under the sun. Starting in verse 4, this preacher, this pastor, he, he turns to nature to make his case about the meaninglessness of life. He looks at the sun, day in and day out, rising and setting, the wind blowing, changing direction, blowing again. He looks at the Jordan River flowing day after day into the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea never overflowing its banks. And he basically asks humanity, how are you not seeing all this effort for no gain all around you? Then he lands on verse 8. All things are full of weariness. It's all tiresome. It's laborious. Not only that, but he also says, man cannot utter it. Literally, he says, man has no strength to speak about it. See, he's trying to show how tiresome life is. The same day in and day out repetition occurs in nature, it occurs in people, and it wears us out to even think about it, he says. We can't even talk about it. Again, boys and girls, make sure you're tracking with me here. Verse 8 for the kids, here's how we said it. Everything, people and planet are so worn out, we can't talk about it. But since we aren't happy, we stay busy and empty. Boys and girls, how many of you have chores to do around the house? Responsibilities that are yours. Do you? I hope you do. I did. And you know what Pastor Sean hated growing up? Still hate, actually. Making my bed. Is there not a more pointless activity that we could do? I'm just going to get back in it in like 15 hours or so. Come on. It's just messed up, right? What's the point? That's what this preacher is saying. In Ecclesiastes, he's saying, what's the point? It's just happening again. Or parents, how about laundry, right? You can run, but you cannot hide. It is coming. Or yard work. Don't even get me started on yard work. Okay. Housework, paying the bills, or that monthly inventory at your job, quarterly inventory at your job, the quarterly reports, annual meeting, weekly staff meetings, kids' baseball practices, kids' baseball games, soccer practice, play rehearsal, Busy, repetitive, these, it's, and ultimately, it's really pointless. Life is a lot more like that movie Groundhog Day than we like to admit, is what Ecclesiastes is saying. See, the preacher here says all of that busyness is exhausting precisely because it doesn't matter in a cursed world. What's the point? I want, you, I want to go back to that phrase from the kids' translation. It says, so worn out, we can't talk about it. I grew up using the phrase dog tired. I've heard some of you around here use the phrase bone tired. That's what this is saying. Everything of humanity, the, the, of humanity and the sun and the wind and the rivers and the sea, creation itself is dog tired. The kind of weariness that goes beyond words. All of creation is flat, worn out because of the curse. The repetition and routine of doing things for no apparent reason is exhaustingly boring. Which is why you and I are driven to distraction, by the way. That's how we respond. 
I want you to think about this. Let's do, a, let's do a thought experiment. Right now, think about how many times in an average day your smartphone is in your hand not being a phone. It's a lot, isn't it? That first hint of boredom, that slightest little pause in the activity, phone is out, Facebook is up. When was the last time we just stopped and let our mind wander without distraction? It's not often, is it? Because what happens? All the problems and stresses rush, rush in, right? You're like, y'all shut up, and you pull out your Facebook, right? The exhausting meaninglessness of life under the sun floods us, and we are driven to distraction to get rid of it. It forces itself into our minds, and so we keep text messaging and Facebooking and Twittering and Instagramming. But what have we gained? Where's the profit? What's the point? See, but we can't stop because verse 8, the rest of verse 8 tells us the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. These things set before us don't satisfy us anymore. The things ringing in our ears no longer bring us rest. Even the most beautiful or good thing has weariness in it. Everything under the sun, he says, is exhausted and tired. So life under the sun is frustrating. It's exhausting. And verses 9 through 11 tell us there's nothing new under the sun. Now, if you know anything about Ecclesiastes, it's usually this phrase, right? There's nothing new under the sun. You see, in our frustration, in our exhaustion, we seek a cure. We seek something new. We could even translate this Hebrew word here as refreshing. We want something to make a difference. Fix it. I'm so bored and exhausted. Give me something different. So we seek a new toy, something shiny to make us feel better, right? See, part of the meaninglessness of a repetitive life is trying to grab something new and exciting and innovative, something different. Those of us with significant credit card debt, how much of it was to get a new trinket or a new experience to make you feel better? Not like groceries to feed your family so you put it on a credit card. And you know how it is. Right? Again, let's be candid. Ecclesiastes says, be candid. Some new gadget, some new clothes, a new house, a second house, a new boat, a new car. The purchase of those things brings a little bit of excitement, doesn't it? Makes you happy for a little while, doesn't it? That's the quest for something new. And that quest for something new is not new. People have been like that since there's been people. There truly is nothing new under the sun. And we forget that. And we get frustrated at life under the sun because we forget life under the sun is frustrating. So we seek something new. Okay, it's been kind of heavy. This is, this is a downer of a text. So I want, I want to take a little break, a little levity here to show you what I mean by this, okay? I want to give you a couple quick examples. We're going to play a quick little game. This little game is called... Who said it and when? It's about one generation looking at another generation. Okay, so we've got a quote right here. Let's go ahead and throw the first one up here. All right, so we got. Here we go. The children now love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show their disrespect to their elders. You want to take a shot? Who said it? When? Any guesses? Anything? It's a Puritan, okay? It'd be about 500 years ago? Nope. Socrates. 2,000 years ago. All right? 480 B.C., for those of you more anal retentive people. All right. All right, how about this one? Let's throw up the next one. 
Got it? The young people of today think of nothing but themselves. They have no reverence for parents or old age. They are impatient of all restraint. They talk as if they alone knew everything. Any guesses? Who or when? Peter the Hermit, 1100 A.D., a thousand years ago, said this. See? Them young whippersnappers got no respect. There's nothing new under the sun. The same complaints from generation to generation. Okay, yeah, but yeah, but verse 10, Pastor Sean, is way out of line. I mean, there are some things that are new. We can look at things like, like technology, like, like medical advancements. I mean, come on. You know, in Puritan England, you get a splinter on a ship, you're infected, you're dead. But we got antibiotics now. Come on, Pastor Sean, there's some stuff that's new. I want to show you something else. You're going to love this one. This has been all over the news. I want to show you a bona fide recipe for a medieval potion. You got it up there? Yeah. This is a bona fide medieval potion. Listen to this thing. This is from 950 A.D. So you take some leeks, you take some garlic, same amounts, you pound them together, you take wine, you take gall from a freshly slaughtered bull. Is that a potion or what, right? You mix it with the stuff, you let it ferment for nine days in a brass vessel. Why am I showing you this? Because they found this text, they translated this text, teams in the UK and the US did it and tested it in petri dishes and in mice. It kills MRSA. You know this antibiotic resistant superbug that hospitals are scared to death of? It kills MRSA better than vancomycin, which is apparently the last ditch antibiotic they go to for MRSA thousand years old kills MRSA better than antibiotics I mean this is something Snape's making in the dungeon at Hogwarts right this is not from a laboratory at Novartis but see so verse 10 tells us you may think it's new but it's been done here's why I, I go to this length we forgot it think of all the knowledge that we have forgotten especially in our chronological snobber we think we're the smartest people who've ever lived We have the internet. We have Google. But verse 11 tells us, just like them, we forgot. And just like us, they'll forget us. So verse 11 lands, you forget the past, the future will forget you. Just like most people who've ever lived are never mentioned in the history books. We live, we strive, we die. And no one remembers us. That is life under the sun. So what's the answer? Well, if life under the sun is so frustrating and exhausting and doesn't have anything new, get over the sun. Seems pretty simple to me. Jesus said that all Scripture points to Him and Ecclesiastes is no exception. By the power of Jesus' resurrection, that indestructible life of Jesus we looked at last week, by that power, the emptiness and frustration of life under the sun will be undone. Instead of being under the sun, we can be in Christ. Which again, the New Testament likes to say, instead of being in this world, it likes to say, be in Christ. It's the same thing here. I want to quickly work back through these three points and show you how this works. Ecclesiastes tells us there's nothing new under the sun. But in Christ, there's something new. In a few minutes, we're going to partake of this table. And when I hold up the cup, what am I going to say? This cup is the... 
Well, before that, new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the remission of sins. There's something new. This is what makes Jesus unique. He does something new for the first time ever. The problem between humanity and God, the problem of a cursed world has been fixed. The Son of God came down and lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. He's reconciled the children of Adam back to their Creator for the first time ever. That's new and it's available to you. That's why the prophet Jeremiah calls it a new covenant. Verses 4 through 8 say there is exhaustion and weariness under the sun. But in Christ, the promise is that weariness is turned into shalom. The Hebrew word for wholesomeness, for peace, for being at rest, for being able to go... It's the exact opposite of frustrating, empty, meaningless, vapor. No to that, yes to shalom in Christ. Because being at peace with God brings the peace of God into our lives. And so we don't have to say, life is meaningless. We can say, I don't understand everything, but God is good all the time. In Jesus, we're free from the weariness under the sun. Finally, verses 2 and 3 tell us there's frustration under the sun, but in Christ, that frustration is undone. The meaningless is made meaningful in Jesus Christ. Specifically, our toil is what is pointed out here in Ecclesiastes. Our work is given new meaning in Christ. Jesus taught, if you remember in the Gospels, that a time will come when He will judge the work of humanity. He will say to His people, Good job. Well done. Good and faithful servant. You did that for me. You remember how the story goes? They will ask, Lord, when did we do it for you? You remember what Jesus says in response? Matthew 25, 40. Jesus says in response, He will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The work that we do matters in Christ because when united to Jesus Christ, we're actually doing it for Him. This is that, that idea that you heard in somewhere in the back of your mind, the idea of priesthood of all believers. It means where, where the Protestant work ethic came from. It meant that whereas a different church said, well, the ministers are doing the real stuff that God likes. The rest of y'all, you just, God doesn't care about you that much, but you better be faithful because you've got to feed the ministers. No, no, no. Scriptures say, guess what? God has called you to run a promotional materials business. Do it for His glory. God has called you to be the vice president of a medical manufacturer. Do it to God's glory. God has called you to be a surveyor. Do it to His glory because you are part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. There is no secular sacred as far as God doesn't like this and God likes this job. No. You are called to spread His kingdom in your work. If you've done it for the least of these, you've done it for Christ. That brings meaning to your work, doesn't it? See, Ecclesiastes asks, what's the gain from all of our toil? The gospel answers, Jesus Christ receives it as personal service and worship. There is great gain. See, Jesus is the answer to the question of Ecclesiastes. Instead of looking under the sun for everything we need in life and getting frustrated and exhausted, we look as those united to Christ by faith. And we find everything we could ever want. So really the question at this point is this. Do you feel the frustration and meaningless and lack of purpose that Ecclesiastes is talking about? 
that frustration that you feel is because you're a disinherited prince. That frustration is God's call on your life to come home, to be reconciled to Him through Jesus Christ. One more quote, then we'll be done, I promise. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors. He was just such a great thinker about the Christian life. And this quote he has, it's famous, it's so applicable to Ecclesiastes 1, isn't it? He says this, If I discover within myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. The reason this world bothers and frustrates you, the reason why we struggle against the meaninglessness and the lack of purpose in this life is because we were not meant for this cursed world. You were meant to be with God in a world that works. If you feel that frustration... Let it lead you to Jesus Christ. Place your faith and trust in Him today. And if you've done that at some point in the past, great. Put it again because we leak and the frustration of this world is always against us. Embrace Jesus as He is offered in the Gospel. Look at life not under the sun, but in Christ. He will bring you relief from your frustrations. Oh, let's pray together.